This is a time of courage, a time of intestinal fortitude where white people also have to confront their ignorance. Ignorance is the beginning of enlightenment. It's learning. You can't learn until you confront and wrestle through your ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's, that's the foundation or the, that's the fundamentals of learning. So adults have to embrace the, the fear and the risk of being vulnerable. You know, what they may say out of just sheer ignorance is, is proven to be untrue. So we, we definitely have to, uh, to take this opportunity to now do some, some deep dive surgery into the systemic issues that allow this thing to exist. I don't know what else we can do. I really don't. If you look at literature, you look at music, you look at movies, you look at marches, we've done it peacefully, we've done it angrily, we've knelt fist in the air. We've used our bodies. That's one of the primary resources we have, our bodies. We've done everything we know to do, and we're still here. Not just incidents, but a culture. I think it takes the white allies to be the voices advocating in solidarity to the white community because they're not going to listen to us necessarily. Not all. Some will, but the masses won't listen to us. That's Byron Davis and Phil Allen Jr. And this is The Ritual Podcast. The Ritual Podcast. Greetings, all season love warriors. It is I, Rich Roll, your host. This is my transmission. Welcome to it. Okay. So, as I record this, mass demonstrations continue to spread across the nation and now the world for what I believe is something like the 20th night in a row. And for many, grappling with, recognizing, coming to terms with the vast extent to which things like police abuse, misuse of power, racism, both overt and covert, and the toxic racial divide that persists and that is woven into the very fabric of our society has been a wake-up call. But it's important to recognize and to confront that for Black people, for Indigenous people, people of color, that this is just reality. That pain, that violence, that fear is every day. I'm committed to better understanding this dynamic, the history that led to it, the systemic nature of it, the institutions that perpetuate it, and the solutions for its long overdue undoing. And part of that commitment is sharing an increased diversity of voices here on the podcast, hearing more from Black and African-American and people of color thought leaders right now in this current moment and moving forward. On that note, today, I reconnect with my friend and fellow swimmer, Byron Davis, along with his friend, my new friend, Pastor Phil Allen Jr. Byron was one of my very first guests on this show, dating all the way back to early 2013, RRP 14. 
Uh, I suggest you mine through the podcast archive. Give that one a listen. Byron is just a wildly inspiring human being. He's overcome quite the obstacles to be this incredible individual. And in that episode, we go deep into his personal story and his journey. Aside from being a former USA national team member, an American record holder, a UCLA All-American and an Ironman, Byron was just three-tenths of a second shy of becoming the very first African-American to make the USA Olympic swimming team. He remains a role model for thousands of young athletes across the country. He's a sought-after speaker and consultant and just one of those very special few with an innate penchant for helping other people unlock their inner potential. Phil Allen Jr. is a pastor, a teacher, a poet, and a filmmaker behind the documentary Open Wounds, which delves into the reality of intergenerational trauma through the story of his grandfather's murder and the police's subsequent refusal to investigate it. Phil is also the founding pastor of Own Your Faith Ministries in Santa Clarita, California, and a second-year PhD student at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he's studying Christian ethics and theology and culture with a focus on Dr. King's theology and ethics, as well as the intersection of race theory and theology. I got a bunch more I wanna say about these gentlemen and the conversation to come, but first. Hey everybody, like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no-cost, science-based habit-building program designed by my well-being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up-level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well-being, courtesy of a doable, evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP 804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on Inside Tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com slash livingproof. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. 
Mometa's products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go. And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, to put it bluntly, this is what I think an important, at times heavy, conversation about what this historic moment represents, and what it means to be Black in America. It's about the economic history of slavery in the United States. It's about the extent to which racism is perpetuated systemically by way of policy, law, economics, politics, and generations of socialization. It's about the ways in which white supremacy is embedded in our religious political, educational, and basically every institution in this country. And it's about getting honest about the extent to which and the manner in which the embedded nature of racism persists, often completely unconsciously, within ourselves, myself included. This moment is an important crossroads for this country. It's an opportunity, a potential awakening, and a collective responsibility to gain objective clarity on historical truth. 
to define what our values truly are and, and put them into action, to dismantle that which is broken and to rebuild from the ground up, not just our country and our institutions, but ourselves as well. I'm grateful to Byron and Phil for showing up, for being open, for being patient and vulnerable with me, for sharing their perspective on race, their very personal encounters with racism, and their stories of pain. And I'm well aware that this conversation might be uncomfortable for some, but I truly believe that conversations like this are crucial if we want to finally transcend our past, if we want to learn, if we want to grow, if we want to do better and lead by example. I, for one, am committed to being teachable, to being challenged, to leaning in, and to being part of positive change. Final note, in the week that has elapsed since we recorded this, Phil decided to make his documentary, Open Wounds, which again is about the lynching of his grandfather and the subsequent police cover-up, available on Vimeo On Demand. It's a powerful 41 minutes. I strongly suggest you check it out and you can find a link to that film in the show notes or on Phil's website at philallenjr.com philallenjr slash openwoundsdoc. Second, Phil is also an amazing poet and spoken word artist, and I was remiss in not exploring this with him during the podcast. I sincerely regret not asking him to perform one of his pieces. So I also encourage you to check out his art on his YouTube page, which I've also linked in the show notes. And you should start with his poem, Colorblind But Not Colorless, which I found particularly powerful. Finally, and especially to those who may be feeling some resistance to this conversation, I would encourage you to watch the documentary 13th on Netflix if you haven't already, which I think does an amazing job at contextualizing and explaining the systemic aspect of racism. I rewatched it with my family the other night, and uh, it's just unbelievably powerful and illuminating. To echo Cornell West, what we don't need are lukewarm folk. We don't need summer soldiers. What we need are all-season love warriors. And it is in that spirit that I give you Byron Davis, and Phil Allen Jr. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, man. This is, this is great. It's good to have you guys here. So why don't we start with uh, just you guys briefly introducing yourselves, kind of what you do, and then perhaps we can pivot into taking a 10,000-foot view on kind of where we're at right now. Okay. Well, my name is Phil Allen. I'm a founding pastor of Own Your Faith Ministries in Santa Clarita, California. Um, I'm a second-year PhD student at Fuller Theological Seminary, studying Christian ethics and theology and culture. Mm. Um, and my my focus um, is Dr. King's um, theology and ethics, um, as well as the intersection of race theory and theology. Mm. Um, so that's my my study and my research will center on that. Um, I'm an author and filmmaker. Just produced a short film, Open Wounds, um, about my grandfather's murder in 1953. Um, family never got justice, and it talks a lot about intergenerational trauma from racial tragedies and um, systems and structures. And, and where do we go? What do we do now? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I tried to find the film online. I watched the trailer, but yeah. it's not it's not publicly available right not now, yet. right? Yeah, not yeah, yeah. Soon, soon. Uh huh. Yeah, but I know the I know the producer, so I can get you a link. All right, man. <laughs> That's a deal. That's I'd good. like to see it. And what does that mean, Christian ethics? Maybe explain that a little bit. Just um, ethics. You know, we have terms like social ethics, um, um, ethics in particular context, but it's just a biblically informed. Um, um, the scripture informing the, the ethics and we'll, how we, um, like right now, how do we respond to uh, a, a murder that we see on on camera for the world to see? How do we respond in a biblically informed manner to this? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we respond to um, what's happening in politics? How does the Bible um, inform that? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, it would seem that uh, everything that's happening right now, like your 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 whole life and everything that you've been studying, has been preparing you for this moment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I wasn't going to release the film. I was trying to get it in film festivals, and when this happened, people who have seen it, because I've screened it a few times in L.A., said, "You, you got to show the film. You got to show the film." Right. And and I thought about it this past week, and I said, "You know what? This is the time." Um, and there's, there's, there are other projects I want to do. And so maybe this is, maybe this is what this is for because we did it in six months. Right. We filmed, edited, produced, and, um, screened it within six months, Mm. raised the funds. Um, and so maybe this is, this is what that was for. (laughs) Yeah. I support that. I mean, I think you could take it to a bunch of film festivals, which now are all on hold or don't yes. exist anymore mm-hmm. for you know a couple small audiences, or you could release it publicly and attract a wide amount of attention yes. to the issue. I mean, essentially the film is about your grandfather who was, you know, without mincing words, lynched, right? Yes. And kind of getting to the bottom of what happened and how that, you know, played out and was covered up. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and how it affected um, my grandmother 60 years later. Mm-hmm. She still, the trauma was still there. She couldn't, couldn't talk about it. And then how it affected my father um, when he found out that his father was killed by a man that lived a few doors down from them. Mm-hmm. And um, it changed his life. And so that was the man who raised me or who was my father. Right. So therefore there's going to be some things going on in my life um, that I'm dealing with because of what's been passed on to me. And I had no idea the root of it. Yeah. And so I started to do this research and I realized um, where the pain, my grandmother's pain was, like why she was the way she was. Right. Why my father was the way he was. And it actually led to um, having more compassion for my dad when I first found out because we didn't have a good relationship. And um, there was a lot of forgiveness that needed to happen on my part. Because of the trauma that he experienced that got passed down and wasn't ever fully processed or communicated to you in a way where you guys could get past it. Yeah, my father, he never, he, you know, we had a conversation a few years ago where he was healing or grieving his mother and my uncle, his brother's death which were like seven months apart. And I asked him, do you think you are grieving your father's death too? He said, well, I never knew my father. I was two when he, he was died. two, right. 
And I said, that's my point. Because, you know, domestic violence, I grew up in domestic violence. I saw it for the first 15 years of my life. Um, my father had drug addiction, alcohol addiction, anger, serious anger problems. And, and there was hate in my heart towards my dad. And so when I found this out, then it was like, wait a minute. He was nine when he found out. He's, pro he's still processing this mm -hmm. stuff. Like, what would I do if I was nine years old and I found out that my father was killed? Yeah. Right? So it led me to, to, to forgive. The story was that he fell off a boat or something like that? They say he fell off yeah. a boat. But my grandmother um, told me her father um, went to the funeral home and, and told the funeral director, don't do anything to the body until I get there. And he got there and he saw the bullet hole in the back of his head or neck. Because mm -hmm. um, his body came up um, a couple of days later. And so um, they know it was murder. Um, and then I, I recently found out the man who shot him confessed it before he passed away. Mm. Um, someone knew him and he was in his later years and, and he had confessed. I guess he felt he could trust that person. Right. Um, and he confessed it, but he's no longer here. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a justice that could never be redressed. Absolutely. And what does that do to a you know a, a young man at age nine when he finds out, and how does he carry that throughout his life and 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 pass it along? Yep. Yeah. Well, I want to get into that a little bit more deeply, but Byron, mm -hmm. I mean, we go way back. Yeah, we go way back. <laughs> I'll be quick. Uh, of course, you and uh, Rich, you and I, uh, you were at Stanford. I was UCLA swimming, and. Um, you know, I'm a former athlete turned speaker, uh, consultant. Uh, Phil and I uh, became, you know, good friends and, and brothers when we were both on staff at a, at a church called Shepherd Church out in Porter Ranch. Um, but we've been uh, connected for, uh, you know, close to 15 years now, 13, 15 years. And both, of, both he and I, um, you know, didn't necessarily start out in this journey of, 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 becoming activists in this issue, but by, by nature of, you know, how he grew up, how I grew up, um, uh, it's, and even in the climate that we're in now, it, uh, it, it just makes sense. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think part of our, our mission and our, our goal, our heart is to elevate the conversation around race and, and around, um, uh, you know, superiority around racism and, you know, just, around people, groups of people in their silos, uh, constantly pointing out, you know, the wrong in other people mm -hmm. and causing so much division that we don't get smart minds on all sides working together to actually address and deal and ultimately heal the problem. Right. He's so humble, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, let's, I just, let's just like lay it out for people that are watching or listening. Like Byron was... Byron's a legend. Like this guy mm. yes. was an incredible athlete. Yes. You know, incre mm. were you the first African American to make the USA national team? Um, actually, um, I know that there was one uh, person um, right before me. Now I'm blanking, which is terrible. Um, but yeah, I was I was one of the first. Right, and just three tenths of a second separated you from becoming the first African American to make a USA 
uh, Olympic team in swimming. Yeah. I was yeah. there at mm-hmm. Olympic trials. I watched that race because <laughs> wow. um, Mark Henderson was my you know teammate yeah. going yep. way back. Um, but I have, and we talked about this and Byron was on the podcast in the very early days. I think it was episode 17 and we went through his whole life story. So I encourage everybody to go back and, and listen to that mm-hmm. um, to get a full, you know, picture of of your life, but you had to overcome incredible obstacles to, you know, not just become the athlete that you became, but to become the man, the father, and the husband that you are today. Mm -hmm. Um, And I got nothing but, you know, mad respect for, you know, that journey that you went on. And you've always comported yourself with just tremendous um, grace and, and just composure through what I would imagine, you know, was incredibly difficult at times. And the fact that you're, you're, you kind of just, you know, didn't even mention any of those things. I just want to make sure that people really understood. Like I remember, you know, we talked about this before, but I remember being at swim meets and, and seeing Byron on the deck and he was just, the guy was like a Greek God. It was incredible <laughs> you know, watching this guy perform. That's um, and so I'm, you know, honored to be your friend and to have you guys here today. So why don't we, I want to get your perspective on, on you know what's going on right now from like a ten thousand foot view, like how are you perceiving the current climate and series of events that we're seeing unfold like rapidly, like everything is accelerating very quickly um, right now. But give me a sense of kind of where your head is at. I, I the first thing that comes to mind is um, pain is manifesting itself. Um, particularly from the black community, um, because George Floyd represents a lineage of black bodies that die senselessly. It just so happens there was a camera to capture it. And I don't know many African-American men particularly that don't have stories, whether it's police officers or civilians, where it could turn ugly, it could lead to something like that because you come across people that just want to flex um, authority or superiority. Um, I've, I've got those stories. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, this, this last um, incident impacted me harder than the others. Because? Well, what's interesting is I, I realized on Thursday, just a few days ago, that my body responded when I saw the video, but my mind did not understand why this thing was so heavy until a a few days ago. So when I saw it, there's this response here um, that this traumatic response in my body, and my mind knew that this was heavy. I'm, I'm, I'm crying throughout the day. I can't write. Uh, I can't study and read. And then a few days ago, I realized this is why. Because it took me back 19 years to my personal experience in New York, being pulled over, profiled. And it didn't lead to brutality or anything, but he was instigating me, the cop. He told me what he could do, and there was nothing I could do about it. And he stood in front of me and he stared at me. And I, I, I guarantee you, if he stood in front of me today, I could, if he was in a lineup, I could point him out mm. 19 years later. So I never forgot that look. So when I saw the cop's eyes, that's what did it. 
it's meaning a, meaning yeah. like I'm I'm the one in control here. Mm -hmm. This 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 evil and this hate. Mm -hmm. Like he was looking at me like he despised me. And it was he was just like he was in my face right here, maybe not even this far away, and just staring at me. And I wouldn't bow my head. I just stared back at him. And when I saw the cop's eyes, it reminded me, it took me back. And I said, mm -hmm. that's why this is so heavy for me. There was something just so brazen about it and yes. casual. Mm -hmm. And there was awareness, there was an awareness that they were being filmed and it didn't seem to didn't matter. matter. And I think right. that is really chilling. Yes, yes. And, and I, just to add, um, I think one, I, I am grateful that it was finally, that was finally captured on video because uh, events up into this point, again, this isn't the first uh, incident of police abuse and brutality that's been caught on video. Um, but what was caught was you had a police officer who, in his posture, had full control over the situation and intentionally decided to put his hand in his pocket and stand in a position of dominance mm -hmm. over this black man until the black man died. Mm -hmm. I, capturing that with other officers, with other officers standing, standing, standing of that. and one officer, you know, timidly even suggesting, "Hey, I think we got this under control," and him like, "No, you know, you're a rookie on the job. You go over there." You know, that all was captured. And I think for the first time uh, in this age of social media, more people actually saw that. Um, not a black kid running away and being shot, mm -hmm. you know, or brutally being beat up. And we come in halfway through the video. We don't know seeing, the story. We don't know the story in the narrative. Right. We, we, we were able to see that. Um, I think that's, uh, in addition to pain, I think it also evokes a lot of anger. Uh among the African-American community because this is what we speak about behind closed doors all the way to the 21st century. I, I, I'll never forget my son, right before he went off to college, he's a freshman at USC now, he and I um, in sophomore year had the talk. And what, what's the talk? It's the talk that black men have with their black sons and nephews mm -hmm. about how to engage in an encounter, interact with the police if you're pulled over or anything of that nature. Mm -hmm. I actually had to have a the talk with my son. Mm -hmm. That's gone on for, I mean, we can't even count. Right. Yeah. Um, there is a palpable sense that this is an inflection point and what, you know, allowed this moment to, you know, capture the the attention of the world in, in such a huge way, um, I, you know, seems to be unclear. Like, is it, is it, the, it seems to be that it's the confluence of a bunch of these events happening in, you know, serial fashion, all mm -hmm. of a sudden mm -hmm. compounded by, you know, people being cloistered in their homes and mm -hmm. jobs being stripped away. Like there's a yeah. rawness yes. right now yeah. to everybody that I think has contributed to this just being an extraordinary flashpoint mm -hmm. for not just America, but the world. And I'm interested in whether you think that there is 
the possibility that this is going to be different. We've been here before. Right. We were here in Ferguson in 2014, and there was a sense that things were going to change, and they didn't really change. Mm -hmm. the, the world was paying attention very closely for a short period of time, and then it moved on. I'm sure in 1968, there was a sense that yeah. we were going to emerge into a post-race nation, and we've made progress, but we've fallen far short of that mark. So do you feel like we're now in a position to make the changes that are necessary to make? And, and what are those changes? I think we are. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical, but I think we have the potential to make significant change. Um, like you said, we've been here multiple times before. Um, that's why, one reason why I'm a little skeptical. But we, if, if we don't make the mistake of just simply responding to the incident, the moment, like that's the only thing that we're responding to. And then once it dies down, we think everything is okay. Maybe justice is served and they go to the cops, go mm -hmm. to, to, to prison um, and the family may get some money. And so justice is served. So now let's move on. I think this is a moment where, and I, I say this all the time to the white community, to be baptized, to be immersed in a culture, a history, a per perspectives um, that are not your own. So I talk to, I'll teach a class or I'll, I'll preach or, or, or have a workshop. And one of the things I hear, one of the most consistent things I hear is, I never knew that. Because I usually will do a survey of history to, to walk us, go back and bring us to this point. Mm -hmm. So people can get context and people are stunned because they never knew, they never knew Emmett Till. They never knew about the amount of, the extent of lynching. They never knew that veterans, um, African-American veterans from the war, World War II would come back and many of them were lynched uh, because now they're a threat. They, they have been empowered as soldiers and they wanted equal but they would be lynched or killed or, or, or beaten, what have you. And people just didn't know the extent of this. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, they think it's just these particular isolated incidents. Then the systemic, the structural, the institutional racism, the laws and policies from decades ago that we're living out the legacy of today that perpetuate um, disparities along racial lines. Um, where it doesn't need to be an individual doing something. Mm -hmm. The laws and policies do them for you as a friend right. of Right, that is the say. definition right. of systemic, yes. right? It yes. doesn't matter, yeah. like the narrative that gets spun is there is no systemic racism. I'm not racist. I don't have racist friends, but the very definition of systemic means that you don't have to be individually racist. You yes. can opt out of that completely. If nobody's racist, the system is constructed in a manner that still leans towards favoring those that have against those that have not. Right. And it yeah. will continue to repress the African-American community until it's deconstructed and yeah. rebuilt yeah. with checks and balances yes. that ensure you know, proper equality and freedom for all. Yep, and that's, Okay. Well, one, one other thing. I think one thing that is different now is it's not just black folks angry. Like when you go to these protests, like mm -hmm. you said, you see everybody there. Now, my mm -hmm. hope is that from this, the bat, that's why I use the term baptize. Now immerse yourself in understanding how we got here. Because if we don't, we will compound the issue mm -hmm. trying to fix it, especially trying to fix it really quick. 
Mm. Uh, we'll just compound the issue because we don't understand it fully. Mm. So that's why that's one reason it gives me a little bit of hope. This is different because um, the people who I see are are angry and out there. It's multicultural. It's not just primarily black people. Yeah, that has been a big difference. Go ahead. Right, history has always been told from the perspective of the victors. Right. Right. People who can control the narrative. And so when you when you look at the the foundation and the history of the United States of America, it was founded on the backs of slavery. Okay, I mean, even when you just go all the way back to when you had the uh, Europeans coming over and uh, in in conquest and adventure, it was economically driven. Right. It, it was all that the foundation. And when they tried to initially uh, enslave uh, in, indigenous people and um, Native Americans, that didn't work out very well because Native Americans knew the lay of the land. They could you couldn't keep them captive. And they found an economic model that was actually going to work. And so from the very beginning of our history, all the way through up and through today, you see the the systemic uh, scaffolding of uh, white supremacy embedded in the system, and uh, you know you you ask the question you know can there be change? There there won't be change until uh, those who have a vested interest in keeping the status quo the mm-hmm. way it is are willing to challenge their own worldview and when their blind spots are actually pointed out, have the courage to change. Mm-hmm. Because then, then that's going to actually shift a lot of the power and a lot of the privilege that exists even to today. Yeah, people don't like to do that though. Exactly, oh, yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. right. And, and that's where it's scary. Yeah. And, and so when you, uh, when you get this, this narrative, a good book um, uh, is, is a book called White Fraternity. Uh, uh, fragility mm-hmm. by Robin uh, um, D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo, thank you. Uh, that actually speaks, puts a lot of good language and articulates this big fear that many white people have about confronting their own racism. Uh, because you don't necessarily have to be a person that hates, overtly hates another person's by because of their skin color to still perpetuate mm-hmm. racism. Um, you just have to recognize when you are asserting yourself and catch yourself or one has to catch themselves on what is the benchmark and the gold standard or the norm by which they define and rate everything else. You know, uh, my daughter, for instance, uh, you know, when a white kid comes up to her, not meaning anything malicious and tells her, you look cute for a black girl. Mm. Right. Right. It's, it's 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 this idea of wait a minute i'm comparing her beauty to a standard that i'm not even aware mm. that i'm even comparing mm-hmm. so yeah, did you legitimacy- see the video clip that was going around with the the australian newscaster who was interviewing the the twin women who who I think there were twins and they came from a, a, a mixed race, mixed race parents and one looked very white and one looked very black. And, and the newscaster was complimenting the, the white looking twin and, wow. and saying, you know, good on you that you got the white. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> wow. you know, yeah. It, it's that, it's, yeah. that is prevalent. And um, that's baked into uh, every facet of our system.
We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years. And I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. I can only speak to my own experience as a white privileged male and you know I can tell you that that I've had to do my own soul searching to look for you know where I've I was going to say like gone awry but I think that's the wrong phrase like more where my blind spots are in all of this um you know have I done an adequate job of ensuring that I have a diversity of voices on the podcast and what are the things that I'm doing you know throughout my daily life that I'm not consciously aware of, mm. but yet are part of the problem, right? Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I've been been struggling with over the last couple of weeks as somebody who has a platform is how do I communicate about this? And what I've what I've noticed in myself is a resistance to speaking because I don't want to say the wrong thing, or I'm afraid that if I say this. It's going to be misinterpreted. I don't care about people being, you know, like 
the people, the trolls and all that, like that, that doesn't bother me at all, but I do want to get this right. And mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I'm effective in my communication. And I think that that, but that fear of, of needing or wanting it to be as accurate as possible has prevented me from speaking up or as, um, or as frequently as I could and, and, and should be doing. And I think that's, something that's probably, you know, a common thing that a lot of, you know, white people have right now. So, mm-hmm. you know, what are what are the questions? Like what is the right question to ask right now? Like if you're speaking to a white person, like what are the things that they should be thinking about and how can they contribute and participate in this in the most effective way? You know, I, I think a a great question is should be asking, how did we get here? Um, because I think a lot, I, I listen to a lot of people speak as if they have the answers, again, because of this event and recent events. And the anger that you see is not just because of these events. This is anger that stretches back 400 years. Because when, when, as an African-American in our community, when we see something happen, it's never just about the thing that happened. Mm-hmm. It's typically about the history this is another thing that's happening. So it's like, it's a sub, it's a natural thing. Um, we don't just look at Arbery's situation. We don't just look at George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. We literally, it's like, a, it's like a file that you just recall the faces and names like that. Or I could go back to Emmett Till immediately. I could and go back- And your own personal experiences. Yeah, personal right. experiences. So I think a good question to ask is, how did we get here? And I don't think enough people- ask that question. Um, I think for one one reason, it's going to force people, particularly white folks, to look at this country differently. It's going to force them to, you're talking about white fragility, what D'Angelo's talking about, it, it forces them to look at themselves because uh, to be American subconsciously is to be white. Mm-hmm. Right? And then everything else is measured against that. Um, I've had people say it in conversations where a guy would say, yeah, I was in this, at this, in this room and it was a bunch of people, diverse, you know, and I, you know, Americans were there. And then he began to, to list the African-American or the black folks, Hispanics. They weren't American, I guess. <laughs> right. But he, when he was saying American, he was talking about the white folks that were there. Mm-hmm. And he did this, he, he wasn't a bad person. He was a great guy. But subconsciously, he just associated American with white. That's mm-hmm. typically what happens. And so to look at how we got here is to now have to open up yourselves to seeing this country differently. Because I always ask the question, when you say America is so great, what's your definition of greatness and when? Mm. Because if you're talking about power, like military might and prosperity, certainly. If you're talking morally and, and being a just society, you have, to, you have to go back and help me understand when was that. Because there's always been systemic and legalized oppression in this country. There's never been a decade, there's never been a time in history, in our history, that it wasn't the case. Mm. And so I challenge that notion of greatness. Do we have the potential to be? Absolutely. And so I think... How do we get here is a great question to ask. And in addition to that, also, um, I think people have to, this is a time of courage. 
a time of uh, intestinal fortitude where uh, white people also have to confront uh, their ignorance. Uh, when when we don't know and that's exposed, that's vulnerable. And and it doesn't. I mean, this this goes beyond race. This is just human nature, right? Mm-hmm. Human condition. If if we're not something, uh, if we don't know something, and uh, and and our current idea or point of view or or answer that we thought was true uh, is shown not to be by just based on evidence, that's a very vulnerable position to be in. Okay, no one likes their their ignorance exposed. But if you look at that, even that term ignorance from just a sheer educational uh, definition, ignorance is the beginning of of enlightenment it's of it's learning you have to you can't learn until you confront and wrestle through your ignorance right mm-hmm. that's what that's that's the foundation or the that's the fundamentals of learning so adults have to embrace um and the the fear and the risk of being vulnerable um you know when when they what they may say out of just sheer ignorance uh is is proven to be untrue well, it requires a certain humility right. too. And I'm uplifted because I'm seeing a willingness to embrace this conversation in a way that that I can't recall in my lifetime. And mm-hmm. that, that gives me hope, yeah. but it's juxtaposed against a climate and a culture that is more deeply entrenched in their, in being right and mm-hmm. their silos and you know the division that we're seeing right now mm-hmm. i it's it's sort of a war between those two things right now mm-hmm. you know social media fomenting this division across america where people just want to yell at each other and no one is taking a pause to actually listen and take stock and you know perform a little bit of you know forensic self analysis but i think these events have led us to a point where we are seeing a certain portion of the population doing that i'm attempting to do that here today mm-hmm. and i think that's really the only path to healing and to and to really reconstructing society ar- around more equitable lines mm-hmm. i mean rich i think you're totally right you hit the nail on the head it, you you have to be willing to have those kind of conversations, when you can get, uh, when intelligent uh, people are are stuck in their silos and their echo chambers, uh, and and spend more energy trying to defend their position than admit that this is a multifaceted, complex uh, problem that is going to take rigorous and consistent attention to in order to really write, in order to really solve the problem. Uh, until we're willing to, to really embrace that, then uh, it's, it's going to be an uphill battle. It's going to be hard because mm. we, are, we, we feel more comfortable when we think we're right or when we have the upper hand. And so when you have people on all sides digging in and – you know, having good points on every side, but spending most of our energy trying to point out where and why the other side is wrong, as opposed to instead of being on opposite sides of the table, coming together on one side and actually pouring all of that energy into the problem. Um, I, I think that's 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 the heavy lifting that has to. And, and conversations like this is a start, but I think what what 
uh, message we want to continue to to really advocate is uh, after the protesting, after the news cycle, you know, has died down, after you know the the shift in attention moves to something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, will we have enough boots on the ground committed to to wrestling within the trenches to right the wrong that we clearly see right now? Yeah, yeah that energy has to get channeled into some kind of productive change that that is, you know, architected around strategies and tactics to yeah. actually you know enact the changes that are necessary, rather mm-hmm. than just you know sort of outrage that just dissipates into the atmosphere. Right. Which yeah. is again um, why you hear people really pointing the spotlight on the dysfunction within the the justice system. Uh, and, and you get a lot of people on one side saying, you know, that's just, those are just bad apple cops mm. and uh, deflecting the attention on, no, this is just, if we look at it in terms of a virus, this is just a flare up of, of, of something that, you know, is still, alive on the inside. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we're seeing is just a flare up happening, but if we don't if we just deal with the the surface, you know, issue and not deal with the root cause on the inside, it's just going to be a matter of time before this little thing heals, but in uh, months, weeks, years, another flare up happens. Mm-hmm. So we, we definitely have to uh, to take this opportunity to now do some some deep dive surgery into the systemic issues that allow this thing to to exist. Mm. Yeah, I think listening to you, Byron, I think one of the things to to look at is um, the power dynamics. Um, when you come to the table, and we we we're talking about division, and each each side, everyone wants to be right. Um, when you come to the table you have to relinquish power because it has to be a compromise. Well, as an African-American man, I come to the table, I'm already, la- I'm already behind. I already, I'm, at the, I'm marginalized already. I don't want to let go of power. Whatever power I do have, I need to have that one to protect myself at this table, to speak up for myself because I don't have much. When a white person comes to the table, they're used to having power, not, even, not as an individual necessarily, but representing the group that's in power. And they get to decide how much power everybody else has. Right. And that's uncomfortable if you have to relinquish that to come to the table to have discussion, right? So it's uncomfortable for both sides. It's, it's a power struggle, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how you, I don't know how you self-police that. I don't know how you hold each other accountable. Um, but that's, that's, that's what I'm hearing. Because yeah. I know when I come to the table, mm-hmm. I'm coming girded up. Because I don't know when I don't know when the next time I'm going to be at the table. Mm. I don't know what decisions are going to be made that's going to affect my life. So I have to come with my power, my agency. Yeah. And then my white brothers and sisters, when they come to the table, they're used to being. It's natural to be in that position. I've been in these meetings before, even in the church, where I, I see this, and I have to flex. I have to assert myself because if I don't, I will get crushed. And then it becomes this battle. Mm-hmm. And then I'm looked at as the person who's out of yeah, control. Yeah, why are you being so aggressive? Yeah, yeah I'm the, the angry, angry black, black man. man. Right. right. And I'm like, yeah. no, just because you're composed and I'm passionate over here, I'm frustrated because you have this power and you're trying to assert that, impose that upon me. And I'm not letting you. Mm-hmm. So I'm the one that's out of control. I'm the angry black guy. And so that's where the, the struggle comes in. I just had a conversation with a pastor <laughs> 
um, recently, and it didn't go well. I mean, it, it was bad. And I didn't know, I didn't really know the guy, but it was bad. And I, I saw the power dynamics in there, mm. right? And um, I wasn't going to relinquish mine because I wasn't going to let him dictate for me, one, how I should respond mm. to this George Floyd situation. I wasn't going to let him dictate to me um, my understanding of racism. Like literally, this is all I do every day, every week. Mm. Other than bald-faced racism and these systemic problems that have created these institutions that um, create inequality, a huge uh, obstacle or opposing force to Black Lives Matter is a huge swath of underprivileged, disenfranchised white Americans who have lost their jobs or are seeing, you know, declines in their in their ability to make a living, et cetera, who are who are hurting. Um, and it seems to me that that's the most activated group of people mm -hmm. who because they because they feel like they're 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 not being heard, right? So right. so their natural inclination is to voice their you know anger in an unproductive way by opposing this movement. Yeah, and I think you have to on some level that like that that has to be addressed in order for everybody to come to the table to compromise. I suppose. So how do you think about that yeah. issue, uh, Richard? One, I think it's a great point to bring up. But it goes back to a point that, Phil, you were making earlier, and this is where uh, getting an accurate perspective of history is so important. When you look back on even uh, after uh, you know, slavery was over and, and blacks were able to, in especially different pockets, go out and actually start making a living. You know, they got their own land, started opening up their own businesses actually started thriving. I mean, under underneath military, you know, protection at that point, support, but they were actually thriving and starting to grow. Well, one of the, the sectors that really uh, be, began to feel the brunt of this new shift in opportunity and power was the, the lower class white community of which the Ku Klux Klan was, was birthed mm -hmm. and born. Because even back then, they started seeing and feeling and, and interpreting their lack was coming from these 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 black people who were taking their jobs, right? Like a zero sum game, like a zero sum game. Black empowerment and advancement was you know, right. at the cost of their own empowerment. Exactly, X's and O's, or you know, binary. This whole binary relationship, and and that and, that, and that's not true. And you, you continue to see that throughout history and not just with the African-American community. We can, we can talk about the Asian community and, and the railroad, um, transatlantic railroad that was built and how uh, there was a huge, you know, skift on uh, employing Asian uh, workers to build the railroad. And by the time the railroad met in the middle of America, uh, you look at the picture of the two sides joining and mm. the big picture of all these men. They were all white faces. The Asian community who actually built that from the Pacific all the way to the Midwest, no, no, no sign that they were even involved in this whole process. Um, because all the way through, you had disenfranchised whites uh, attacking people who thought were taking their opportunity away. So you're definitely right. What, what's being felt now 
is, is again, another symptom of a dysfunctional structure that has to be examined and looked at rigorously. It's not an easy answer. Um, and on top of that, when you have, uh, not getting too political <laughs> with this, uh, but, but when you have voices um, recognizing the divide and then throwing fuel on, on or, you know, uh, gasoline on the fuel to keep the division necessary, it doesn't, it doesn't help the problem. Uh, but, but I hope that that kind of speaks to, to why it's so important for, for us to, again, really take this, uh, you know, take the long, um, it, this is the long game that we have to be willing to, to, to wrestle with and, and then look at, uh, you know, why are a lot of uh, white, commu- uh, traditionally white communities um, suffering, white lower class, class communities suffering? Well, it's not because blacks or Latinos are taking their jobs. It's because the system that actually created economic opportunity, maybe in that environment or that, that local area, has shifted. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's not coal any longer. It's not uh, an industrialized support system or infrastructure that's generating the revenue for that community. Things have shifted. Automation. A lot of things have changed that have now taken dollars and cash flow out of that community. Um, and so we, we've got to look at that. We, mm-hmm. we have to look at this problem in a very compound complex way. And then in the process of solving the problem together, be willing to look at our blind spots when our blind spots are exposed. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we, let's go back a little further, 1600s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was around 1680. This is one of the things that I try to get people to understand. White supremacy is a very exclusive, originally a very exclusive club. It was white and wealthy. So, the lower class or the working class, the poor whites actually had more in common with the with indentured black servants and slaves back in the 1600s mm-hmm. than they did with the merchants. And there was an uprising. I think Bacon's Rebellion, there was an uprising. This is when the term white became a legal term and privileges became attached to it. And this is how they divided the, the African-Americans, the African slaves mm-hmm. or African indentured servants and the whites, the white, poor whites. If you're white, you could have property, you could vote, you could be a citizen, you had privileges. So this is where we start with the white privileges. And so that divided because now the poor whites saw themselves on the hierarchy here and blacks were here. We're not like them. Well, just a few weeks ago, we were this. Mm-hmm. And so white supremacy actually crushes its own. But there's such an allegiance even from poor whites to whiteness and its privilege, its superiority. It doesn't see that. They actually have more in common with other marginalized groups Mm -hmm. because white supremacy by nature is not just whiteness, but it's wealthy, right? And and that— and it's, it's a, again a power struggle. It'll it'll crush anything that's not in that group. Yeah, it, it'll turn on each other mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's built on greed and, and, and avarice, what have you. And when you can have a person who re- remains nameless uh, position himself as the um, blue collar billionaire, you and, can name him <laughs> Trump. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. when when you you have a person who's able to in his own narrative. And his own uh, campaign to pr- the presidency hijack 
the 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 narrative and convince those who were marginalized who had no nothing in common with this guy mm-hmm. you know to then vote and uh you know allow him to be the voice of of their disenfranchisement if i if i can say that what was brilliant from a marketing standpoint it was brilliant because uh he was able to to do that and then point their angst and their their anger uh, toward um, uh, again other marginalized groups. I mean, w- w- we saw we see this even back in the days of, and I'm not comparing Hitler to Trump by any means, but we can see what al- what was it that allowed Hitler to create such a strong narrative that um, permeated uh, outside of Germany to the rest of the European world and demonize. Um, you know the the uh, you know, Jewish community. Well, it was a narrative of pointing the finger at all of these uh, Jewish, you know, Mertens and business owners, and saying they are the reason why you're poor. They are the reason why you don't have opportunity. It's them, and and that message, that narrative, was allowed to get, again echo and echo and echo, and pretty much. Before you know it, and, and even the, um, the the minister of propaganda, uh, you know, of 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 the the Nazi movement says, if you tell a lie long enough, mm-hmm. the masses will believe it. Yes, yeah, certainly he's a master of of creating reality out of his own, you know, mm-hmm. delusional narrative and energizing his base by putting a face on what that enemy is mm-hmm. without expressly saying it, but through every action and everything that comes out of his mouth. Um, It is, you know, gasoline on this fire. And, you know, I think it's gonna blow up in his face. Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing that right now. Um, My hope is that this is gonna energize young voters to turn out. I mean, just what we're seeing in the streets right now, I've never seen public activism on Mm -hmm. this level. And so I'm hopeful that change will come in November, but, if we've learned anything, <laughs> these you things, right. there's nothing off the table right now <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in terms of what what could happen. Um, but his ability to um, leverage that anger and sense of disenfranchisement for his own personal gain and do it under the rubric that he is in their interest mm-hmm. is one of the great snake oil hat tricks of all time. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I was just with uh, um, actually having a conversation with a, a good friend of mine um, who happens to be a very right-wing conservative Christian. He and I were on a on a conversation, a long conversation, and uh, I, I just share it was it was a um, a, a, a thought experiment. You know, I, I decided I, I asked him. I said, "Hey, let, let's 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 do a thought experiment really quickly." He and I were were. Uh, roommates at UCLA freshman year, okay? And he came from uh, Iowa and I'm from inner city East Cleveland, okay? Both coming together and having to room together um, and learn a lot about each other through this whole, you know, first year at, at uh, in college. And I, and I shared with him, I said, hey, look, let's put race aside and, and let's just look at this from an aspect of privilege. I said, you and I were athletes who um, were blessed to get scholarships to UCLA, Correct. And he's like, yes. And I said, well, um, you know, be honest. Uh, w- could you have gotten into UCLA on sheerly your SAT scores and your GPA? And he was like, no. Mm. 
right? And I was like, well, guess what? Join the club. Me too. We, we were both there, right? Here's a white guy saying the exact same thing. And I said, guess you and I were beneficiaries of the privilege that was extended to us uh, in the form of an athletic scholarship. You know, our, our names were, were put higher on the list of admissions because of some perceived value that we were bringing to the university. That's privilege, that's the privilege that you nor I deserved. Yeah, we can both make the argument that we worked hard in the pool. We got faster and, and we, we demonstrated that, that we were good enough to compete at the college level. Sure, that doesn't take away our effort at all. But what we have to really recognize and be honest about is if there was not an infrastructure that valued swimming at the D1 level, Enough that they were willing to say, we would love to give you, you know, equivalent to your tuition and books Mm -hmm. if you decide to swim with us. If that construct, if that infrastructure didn't exist, we probably wouldn't have been able to get in. Mm. But you might not have put so much energy into being a good swimmer had that opportunity not existed like in your horizon, right? right? Yeah. You, you might've channeled your energy in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And I kept saying, I should have been a basketball player. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so that's interesting though, this idea of how, of how Christianity fits into all of this mm-hmm. and another juxtaposition with how Christianity has been leveraged by the right. Um, in a manner that contravenes the the core principles of what this religion is founded upon, and yourself as a pastor, and and Byron as a former pastor, um, like let's talk about that. Like I listened, you did a you did a sermon, like a recent podcast. I'm not okay that I listened to where you kind of break all this down, and you don't pull punches at all in that, which I appreciated. Um, so, where does faith play into this politically? and also spiritually with respect to the movement that we're seeing at the moment? Well, two things. Um, one, I think we have to be honest. We, we, we've been deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are practicing the Christianity that, that's in scripture. American Christianity looks very differently and it's intertwined with Americanism, it's individualism, capitalism. I just wrote a paper. Um, I think I'm going to turn it into a book one day, neoliberal, the neoliberal gospel. And it's, it's a business. All right. And we forget about, we, we forget the fact that we're in the people business actually. So I think, I think the way we, we, we live out Christianity, we have to be honest that we're far from, and I'm, I'm pretty critical about the church. We're far from as a, as a group, living out what we see in scripture. It's very Americanized. Um, But as a pastor, what I'm seeing happening is I'm seeing trauma. You said earlier, we witnessed a lynching, a public lynching. I had a a guy come up to me once. I preached a sermon and the last couple of years, almost everywhere I go, I weave in justice into it. I shared my grandfather's story. Older white gentleman comes up to me afterwards and says, he's in tears. And he says, I have to confess, you know, my grandfather was, he has pictures in the house of, a, of him standing in a crowd, proudly smiling, and there's a lynched black body 
hanging behind him when he was younger. Or maybe when he was an adult, I don't know. He said, those pictures are all around the house. We're all around my grandfather's house growing up. They were just normal. That's crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He's in tears and he's apologizing, but he doesn't know what to do with that. And what I'm seeing in this man, I had to get past my offense to that. And I didn't, it wasn't hard. I was in pastor, pastor mode, but this man was genuinely in tears, broken. What does a child seeing that, what does that do? Like our souls aren't meant to see that and be normal or experience it or engage it and be normal. What we saw was a public lynching two weeks ago. That's not normal. To, to move past that and, and not address the pain, the woundedness, the trauma, that wouldn't be normal. So for me, I think that we can't, and, and I see too many people trying to fix the problem. They're trying to rush to fix the problem. Well, how many of us have ever been in a relationship with someone who's wounded, like deeply, deeply wounded and end up being toxic? Doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. It could be a friendship. They're just toxic, right? Well, they're, they're still dealing with some stuff that they've never addressed in their lives. They've never walked through the healing process. And I think it is critical right now that there be intent, we be intentional as the church, if we say we're about those core principles that we tend to the wounds of those who witnessed this, 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 this lynching. And I see too many people in the church, they say nothing about the murder. Their focus is on the, either the looting and the violence there, or their focus is on trying to, um, what's the word I want to look for? Trying to, um, debate against this idea of systemic racism. Mm-hmm. And they they weave that into politics. They, may, they politicize it. Yeah. They spend more energy there. And these are, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm detoxing my social media as we speak. I'm saying, keep posting. Keep posting so I'll know who to unfriend. Because I, <laughs> I, 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 I don't right. want that in my, you know. Yeah. yeah. I'm detoxing, man. I'm like, yeah. you're not even open? Okay. I'm unfriend because I don't want that in my feed. Yeah. Right. Maybe I shouldn't unfriend. Maybe I should just unfollow that they could still see my stuff, but I don't have to deal with their stuff. Right. Here's something too, to just to continue to add. Um, so what, what, what does the church do? Um, like Phil, I'm, I'm coming down pretty hard on the church because if you, if you just look at the life and teachings of Jesus, um, you can't be so, um, so gripped on your ideological and political beliefs, whether you're from the right or the left, to the point where uh, you forget about what Scripture teaches you about how to engage and love your fellow man, your fellow brother and sister. I mean, that's, I mean, the, the foundation, you know, and the, the, the message of Jesus and his teachings is love. And if, if you can't start there at all, and I'm not just being like the kumbaya type of, uh, you know, let's, we all get along. I love you. I don't see color. I'm not even talking about that. I, I hope you see color. Um, I want you to see color. I want you to see the differences because that's, I think, where the beauty is. What, what, what I think is important is if you care more about your political posturing and positioning more than you do about 
uh, being an example and a model, a vessel of, of the love that Jesus actually died for, then your religion, you know, is, is deaf. It's mute. It's dead. Uh, because, because that's not what he lived and ultimately died for, Hmm. you know? So that, that's, that's, that's the voice or that's my, um, my charge and encouragement to the Christian community is, Hey, we're supposed to have the playbook to lead through this time right now, right? We're, we're supposed to be the ones that people can actually look to, to see how do you bring two people who have different ideas, totally different walks of life and come together in a way, in a supernatural, miraculous way, I mean, the church should be leading the charge. Mm, yeah, what are the moral and ethical guideposts right. that are gonna dictate how we navigate this landfield, right? And I, I love mm. the example, the analogy of the wounded friend. It's like, if you think of a friend who's deeply wounded or has suffered tremendous trauma and use that as a stand-in for the African-American community, how do you interact with that person? Do you come to them and say, well, I'm gonna fix you with these three things. I and mean, we could talk <laughs> about um, you know, how we need to overhaul policing and police brutality. And there's you know, several steps that we can take towards redressing that, but that's not gonna heal that wound overnight. You come to a wounded friend with compassion and with understanding and with patience, right. yep. not with a motivation to change or to fix, but to understand. Mm -hmm. I, to, to your point, I think about the story of the Samaritan man. The man's left on the side of the road to be beaten. Dr. King preaches on this, a brilliant. Um, the African-American community, for the sake of this conversation, is the man left to die, to die on, the, on the road. The Samaritan man, she, well, the church is the, the, the priest and the Levite who walk to the other side, leave him, leave him laying there doesn't want to touch him, just walks to the other side. The Samaritan man is supposedly like this person who's not connected to God, like the priest and the Levite, but this person comes and gets to, gets to his knees and tends to the wounds. He's taking a risk because there could be some other robbers hiding out waiting for the next person to walk on that road. Mm -hmm. He's taking a risk by tending to this man's wounds. He takes this man and puts this man on his animal while he walks to the inn. So he's now sharing resources and he's giving up access to those resources to a degree. He gets to the end. He says, here's, here's for his stay till he gets better. And in whatever, if he stays longer, charge it to me. I'll, I'll take care of it because he has the resources. Mm -hmm. Now, here's, we go, here's that, that should be the church's response for the tending to the wounds part. But then here's the church's other response. And Dr. King brings this out. We also should speak to the conditions that allow the road to be conducive for robbers to hide mm -hmm. and, and beat mm -hmm. people up in the first place. Because if we don't address that, tomorrow, somebody's going to be back on that road and robbers are going to be hiding out because the road is conducive for that, the curves and everything, right? If it was modern day, it would be something like we got to put lighting up mm -hmm. on the road so it's not as, as dark. Mm -hmm. We got to have patrolmen coming. So it, it scares the robbers. We have to do something to make the road safer for those who are traveling that road. Right. Otherwise, we're going to be back in this situation again. Yeah.
An example of that that comes to mind is is what DeRay McKesson is doing with Eight Can't Wait. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with this? Like how you know he's got these steps and things that um, are you know immediately actionable in terms of like changing how policing is done. And he seems to be at the forefront of addressing that ever since Ferguson. Yeah, which I think is a beautiful step. And okay, here are some some handles that you can actually implement. And we can hold you accountable in measures that are available to, okay, police departments, what do we do? Well, here's here are the eight that you can actually look at. Look at how you train your officers. Look at the current uh, rules and, and things that are currently in place that contribute to this type of abuse and power. Um, let's attack those things. Let's address those things. You know, we don't want to put policemen in harm's way any more than they they are mm-hmm. currently, that's not the intent of of reconstructing this whole thing. It's to look at which of these things are not working. I mean, if we were looking at a business, right, and a business decided to uh, to launch, a startup decides to launch, they create a software and all. What do what do they recognize inherently in the process? They have a minimum viable product that they know is not going to fly completely and perfectly when they release it to market, right? They, 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 they release it knowing full well that when the system begins to mm-hmm. be in contact with reality, bugs are going to show up. But they also, in addition to that, have a plan of rapid implementation, rapid ideation to improve the system. That's the type of mindset we need to have when we're talking about our judicial system, when we're talking about our policing system, is recognize that, hey, what you have in place okay, it's a good start. You may have been well-intended in these rules and regulations and structures, but we see that the real world is showing where this stuff is dysfunctional. Let's change that. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's implement rapid uh, you know, um, tooling to improve what's there. And I think um, Eight Can't Wait is a great suggestion and a great step in doing that because police departments who've already put that into effect, we're seeing positive benefits. We're seeing decrease in senseless police killings. Yeah. And I think what's great about it is that it's not about rhetoric, it's data-driven. So it's not just, we need to defund the police. Like, what does that even mean? I mean, I I understand that's an emotional reaction to seeing a militarized police state that does nothing but instill fear (laughs) and exacerbate whatever violence, you know, is happening on the street. But to actually look at the statistics and say, what are the levers that we can pull that will actually make a difference? And Mm -hmm. some of them are counterintuitive. Like I heard him talking about it on a podcast the other day where you would think like, well, um, you know, if you just hire more black police officers, that'll solve it. But they realized that that isn't effective until they reach something like 34% of the police department being Mm -hmm. black or, you know, instituting psychological, you know, psych training or whatever. Like they found out that that's really not that, like things that you think might work Mm -hmm. actually don't, but looking at the data can, show you like, oh, but these simple things that every police department can do actually could make a huge difference in right. in uh, reducing fatality rates and, and all of the abuse instances. Yeah. Is there any part of Eight Can't Wait that suggests the, the, those who are in power, those who are, um, have the power to, I don't, I don't know who, who would it be, but captains and, and commissioners, because um, if they've already bought into the previous 
ideology mm-hmm. that actually has been passed on since the 1800s when policing was designed to patrol the slaves and protect the property of the wealthy. Um, if they, that, That's been passed on. Mm-hmm. So if they've bought into that and that's who they are, we're asking them to to buy into something that is foreign to mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. So right. It, it's, and checks, it's checks and balances on individuals and systems in which there is a systemic problem, yeah. right? It's it, These are good solutions, but you're speaking to the broader problem of dealing with the systemic aspect of it. And that goes to the psychology of the people that are administering these mm-hmm. departments mm-hmm. as well. Right. I was talking to a, um, another uh, person, a police officer, uh, and we were just talking about, uh, this was actually a while back, and uh, we were just talking about the the, the emotional health of police officers going into and, and having their, their life be every time they step out of the door, it's depending on their beat, uh, you know, it isn't known whether or not they're going to come home. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's the reality that they, they live in. And he and I, um, in our conversation, he was sharing, well, here are some things that I think we need to improve. And I thought it was really interesting. He said, number one, uh, some of the systemic issues for police officers is number one, good cops have to actually mm-hmm. be supported and and protected enough to call out bad cops. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a, a fraternity and a subculture within the uh, precincts themselves, where a, a, a good cop mm-hmm. doesn't feel safe in actually calling out and holding accountable a bad cop, that's dysfunction in the system that needs to change. Yeah. On top of that, you have to have a support system where, again, we're not even going to get into, um, you know, the domestic violence of police officers, uh, the the drug and alcohol abuse that that's, um, that's systemic and you see the divorce rate that you see from police officers. All of these things are, again, flare up conditions that are coming as a result of a dysfunctional system. So, so you know, I'm all for and, and we support, you know, police officers. So this rhetoric of, uh, you know, you got to be for the blue. If you're, if you're protesting, then you're, you're not supporting our mm-hmm. police officers. We got to get past that. Yeah. You know, it's no, let's look at the system in which these guys and gals have to work. And let's be honest about how can we go about helping them win in this then also, in addition to what I've just listed, also includes, um, you know, their sense and their fear of African-American males. I mean, there is a huge uh, subconscious. I mean, I, I've experienced it my whole life. And, and, and actually, Phil and I were talking about this. And, I, and, and if you look at, uh, I, I've shared this before, and that is there is a secret language that all uh, African-American men and women who work in, you know, the white collar sector have learned to speak. And I'm not just talking about being able to speak, or, um, you know, be proper and articulate. I'm talking about there is a way that when we walk into a boardroom, when we walk into an environment, when we walk down the street and a white woman is approaching us, we've learned how to signal to them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that, hey, we're friendly. You're safe. We're safe. Yeah. You know, you're a non, you're, you're non-threatening. We're a non-threat. You're not an angry black man. <laughs> exactly. You're right. <laughs> yeah. That, that is real. Uh-huh. And, and so, uh, those things have to be addressed. And mm-hmm. again, uh, the onus has to, a lot of the onus has to fall on, uh, white America and not being so fragile in those, in that context. Right. 
and and be willing to step up and be willing to, hey, if I'm passionate, Ellie, arguing my point across a boardroom table, don't dismiss it as an angry black man. No, uh, let's rigorously argue and deal with the points that I'm bringing up. Because if my counterpart, who happens to be white, is just as adamant, just as as committed in expressing their point of view on this on a, that particular issue, they're going to get a pass on that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, this just they're gonna they're gonna probably walk away from the meeting. Wow, he was he was really really you know excited about you know his 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 idea. Passionate. He's passionate. Yeah. Right. Not angry. Yeah, that double standard. Right. It's exhausting. It's got to be exhausting, I just, right? I was just, I was <laughs> just, I was just saying. Yeah, yeah. Some days, I just don't care when I'm going running, and I have to think about when I see that white woman. She mm-hmm. doesn't realize she has more power in the situation. Mm-hmm. Right. But I'm more, I'm more nervous than she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> if she says anything, she's going to get the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And sometimes you're just tired. You just, you know. Being in, a, when you work in a mega church, I'm not there now, but when you work in a mega church, it's like working in a, a big company. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. And it's, it's, you have to think about it. You have to consider it. Um, and it's mentally draining. And some days you just don't care. Some days I want to be really, really passionate. And I just don't care what you think, uh, you know. But then you, you can't be like that all the time. So you got to monitor yeah. that. Um, and it's, it's just those little microaggressions. That if, if we look at, you said 10,000 feet, let's look at where we are, going back to earlier. If you look at everything, the fatigue, the anger, it's, it, it's about all of this of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's about the microaggressions. It's about being in the workplace and my voice is muted by everyone else's voice is, is heard. It's about being in the, in the grocery store or in a store and being surveilled, having the surveillance um, we call it, call it the white gaze. It's about like walk- a hyper vigilance yeah. everywhere you go. It's like yeah. walking into Starbucks and the, the, the guy over there just sitting. He's just staring at you, and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And you feel the eyes on you, or the guy that almost hit me purposely coming out of Whole Foods a few months back, um, purposely, like he came within inches, did not slow down, didn't stop. Well, he slowed down, but he didn't stop. And he tried to make it seem like he knew I'd already cleared, but I'm inches away from your car. Right. And just those daily occurrences just getting put into the file cabinet, right. you know, week after week after yeah. week. I think that what's so special and unique about right now is we're seeing every flavor and color of that kind of experience mm-hmm. writ large on social media because mm-hmm. the most impactful and you're a filmmaker, but the most impactful and um, powerful filmmaking that we're seeing right now is what's coming out of everybody's cell phone, right. you know, from the birder in Central Park with mm-hmm. that woman and the encounter that they had from right. the cops that knocked over that elderly white man in Buffalo. And right. then all the police officers that, you know, resigned mm-hmm. in their omerta to those guys being fired. like. Right. And everything in between from the police, the good police officers who, you know, took a knee or marched with the protesters, mm-hmm. the bad behavior, the good behavior, and we're having conversations about it. Yeah. That can't be a bad thing. This boil is being lanced. It's out in the open right now. And we have this extraordinary 
opportunity to leverage the energy around this to mm-hmm. actually do some good with lasting change. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you brought that up with the, the cops taking the knee. It goes back to coming to the table and the relinquishing of power where those who are protesting, you know, it could be a young girl. It could be a small, petite woman that's fiery. She's holding on to whatever power she has, but that cop has to be willing to relinquish power. And he may get backlash that you're showing a sign of weakness, but you you notice whenever they, they do that, it's, it's usually peaceful. It's usually yeah. some reckons, it's usually something that shifts the, mm. the, the tenor of the protests, right? But that was him or whoever they are coming to the table at that moment and the willingness to relinquish some power and humble themselves and say, you know what, I get it. I'm still going to be a cop. I get it, but I'm going to kneel with you. And mm-hmm. it's meeting them where they are. And they see now they're no longer threatened by your power. And that's, that was a, I think that's a perfect example of what I was talking about coming to the table. If, if that can happen behind the scenes, um, when you're coming up with legislation or police reform or institutional reform in companies, corporations, if that can happen, then you'll see some significant change, mm-hmm. right? And lasting um, change. Lasting change, but that those power dynamics um, are at play. Yeah. yeah. And you also mentioned the example of uh, the, the uh, elderly gentleman being pushed over by the police officers. Uh, you know, if you look at that tape, I think also, I think that's a great snapshot of the systemic dysfunction as well. Because there's the one guy who one wanted guy, to help them. Right. He was on duty and he had his orders were to march forward. He, in his humanity, recognized that what just happened. And in his humanity, wanted to stop to help him. But his whoever was the commanding officer at that time or whoever literally physically said, no, you continue to march mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. That, I think, again, it tells a, a strong story of just yeah. how insidious, how complicated, um, yet how urgent the problem we're facing is. And, and we have to be willing to... Uh, stop looking at the status quo or looking at um, you know, our job as, as normal, as, as usual, and start, again, challenging what is not working and taking the time to figure out how can we do it better. My, my, my hope and, uh, and, and my encouragement is I, I believe we can. You know, I believe that we are intelligent enough um, and we are compassionate enough to actually make inroads and, and solve this thing. I, I, I truly do. But it's going to take uh, courageous voices and a staying power uh, that, that will allow us to eventually get escape velocity, one, get off the ground, and then two, escape velocity mm-hmm. and fight through all of that natural resistance that we've been talking about this whole time to the point where we get to an inflection point that then allows this thing to really take on a life of its own. We're nowhere near that yet. And so this gravitational pull is the area that we're in and we have to just understand that and recognize we're in for a fight. So let's buckle up, let's lock arms and let's stay committed. Yeah, I think it's gonna require an appreciation of the incredible complexity of all of it too. When you were speaking there, I was thinking about the the situation in Flint where the the was it the chief and mm-hmm. the cops were marching with the protesters yeah. and a distinguishing factor there 
at least according to my understanding, is that the police officers live in the community there. Whereas due to socioeconomic disparity, a lot of police officers can't afford to live in the communities in mm -hmm. which they police, which creates a lack of connectivity to the people that they're supposed to be protecting and serving, yeah. right? So that's just another like layer uh, or issue that needs to be unpacked and addressed that mm -hmm. goes, be, it, you know, that's almost beyond, like how do we solve economic disparity so <laughs> right, that, right. you know, police officers can live in the same area where they're patrolling. Yeah. Like these, these, these problems are huge, right? Yeah, right? They're huge, mm -hmm. huge. And um, I, I like what, uh, I mean, Phil has a, a program, I call them the four L's and speak to that a little bit more. Um, and I, you, you talk about, okay, what do we do now? You know, uh, you know, the eight can't wait, I think is a, is a great start. Right, but, can't, which uh, is, I think is a subset of campaign zero. Campaign right? zero, exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, great website. And there's some other, um, I can't think of it right now, but resources, but those are two great resources that I think people can go to and look at, okay, what can I do now where I'm at? Because a lot of people feel defenseless. A lot of people feel hopeless and don't feel like their voice counts or what they do would actually matter. And that's not the case. And so hopefully in the show notes, we'll be able to you know, give links to organizations that are bipartisan and that are just, their, their boots on the ground really trying to figure this thing out, I think would be important. But, but Phil, can you speak to um, just the, 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 the four L's that kind of helps people walk through this process. Yeah, we, we've heard um, a couple of those L's, the listen and the learn. Mm -hmm. We hear that all the time. Just a little background. We were watching a, a film in class four years ago, um, MLK class, and they showed Emmett Till. And that's when I first realized, wait a minute, Emmett Till reminds me of my grandfather. My grandfather's body would have probably looked like that. And... We broke up into small groups and I shared with my class, my two classmates, I can't see Emmett Till without seeing my grandfather. And it kind of shocked them. So they, they were intently listening to me. They were in a context where they were learning from a Korean MLK scholar, Hak Jun Lee, about an African-American pastor, scholar, theologian, MLK. So they were listening and learning that was happening at the same time. They were learning from my story, but they were learning theology and ethics, um, Christian theology and ethics about Dr. King from a Korean man, from people of color. But what, what shocked me, what never happened before, I'd never seen this, was when they began to cry. I'd never seen a white person moved or feel for mine or my people's pain as it relates to racism. They were in tears to the point where one kid said, as you see your grandfather in Emmett Till, I see my grandfather in the men who killed him. And that's a huge, that's huge, right? Mm -hmm. Then I shared with the whole class, the whole class, not the whole class, but many people in the class began to just be in tears. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to document what I had experienced in that class that day. And I said, they were listening, they were learning, they lamented. And for me, in this journey to what do we do, that's the soul work that needs to happen. That makes up the soul work, but the inner work, because we can jump into fixing stuff and compound the issue because we don't understand the issue. We don't understand the depth of the pain. We don't feel it. We're just in here trying to fix 
uh, a problem that we think we can take care of real quick. Mm-hmm. Then it's the labor. And the reason why the lament part is so important, I don't know anybody who sustains something that's that causes change without passion, without a burden, without something in the gut that drives them, right? Um, so now the labor, but the labor is depending on context, the person's influence, their relationships, um, who they have, you know, it, it depends on where they are in, in, in their life. So like somebody could have a platform, a huge platform. So their labor could be, as you said earlier, bringing, making sure it's diverse voices or black voices have a platform, sharing a platform, whatever. A teacher, like at my school, some of them are now forced to relearn some of their theological positions, uh, perspectives. They're, 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 they're being challenged by people of color, the perspectives mm-hmm. of color. So now they're having to diversify their reading list and their curriculums. Um, schools are now having to bring in, um, change up the dynamics of their administration, their board of trustees. These are some things that need to happen. But those things won't be sustained without the inner work, the listening, learning, the lamenting. And so the, the labor part, it depends on context where you are. For somebody, it could mean joining a, a, an organization in your local community that is doing the work of social justice. For somebody else, it could be funding um, as well as um, how you um, handle your social media platform, um, being responsible there. I mean, it could mean a number of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I tell people in the church, it starts, your labor should start with prayer. If I'm praying for this daily, you need to be praying for this daily too. And again, on the labor part as well, another High profile example is um, the co founder of Reddit, you know, deciding to. Right, I saw that. Yeah. Alexis Ohanian. Yeah. yeah. Ohanian says, you know what? Okay, I I recognize my privilege. I recognize the position that I'm in. Um, I'm going to, you know, again, he's more of a head of a chair role and things of that nature, but he's like, I am going to use this as an opportunity to remove myself and then strongly recommend that an African-American person be put in this place, not in some affirmative action type way, you know, but, but recognizing that, hey, look, this is something that I'm going to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem through my complicitness or my, um, because I don't know what I can do decide to remain frozen and do nothing. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm going to try this. I'm, I'm going to do this. And this is an example, but I'm also going to call out anyone else who is in a, in a position where they can purposely and willfully render or give over to them the power that's necessary to right the ship faster. Mm-hmm. You know, those moves have to continue to, to take place as well. And again, this isn't about, uh, you know, giving black people something that they don't deserve or unqualified for, because you hear that argument too. You hear mm-hmm. that argument against affirmative action. You hear that argument again, a lot of these different problems. Well, you know, these people aren't not really qualified to do this. So that's unfair that they would take a spot from someone who's more deserving, not even getting into all of that. Well, what, what I'm, what I, the point that I really want to highlight is no, there are enough qualified African-Americans, and if you want to even broaden it out, other minority groups who are just as capable of excelling in that role. But if your networks aren't healthy enough so that when you go through the hiring process, most of those jobs 
uh, in influential positions are done through network. Mm-hmm. It's the buddy system. All right. And then they kick the tires through HR. Right. But they the people have been hired. I mean, I, I've had that experience. We know that that's how it works until your network becomes diversified. And um, I, I would challenge I used to challenge executives and, and, and pastors this. I said, if you're in a hiring position and there's a role that needs to be hired for, but it's an important role, um, what do you normally do? And they, they normally pick up the phone and they start calling their buddies. Yeah, who's right? good? Who's good? Who do you got? Who do you know? And then I say, well, you know, the first five people you call, think about it. Think about the first five people in your, your Rolodex or, or your, your contacts list. Now I get them to think about it. And then I say, all right, now what color are they? If all five of those people who you would pick up the phone and call their first five calls, all of them look like you recognize that in that moment, you're still now perpetuating the problem because you're only exhausting and exploring a network that's going to continue to produce the same thing. Instead, why not uh, in this time actively begin to diversify your network? It could even start there. Mm. This this guy from Reddit, I don't know if he should should have done that. I don't know because if he removes himself, he's already an advocate. He removes himself and brings in this black guy, is this black guy going to be at the table by himself with no other voice advocating with him? Mm-hmm. So rather than removing himself from the table, I think they should add the more seats to the table. I think that because I don't want to come into a context where the guy that was just advocating for me, he leaves and I find myself there. Now you're the target. <laughs> and no yeah. one no one else really f- feels the way he feels. Now I'm fighting a battle, but he's gone. Well, the argument that gets thrown around is that this is a performance of white guilt for the purpose of virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the, the pendulum can't swing the other way. White guilt of, of doing that, it's like, a, uh, but here's where I extend a lot of grace. Uh, it, it's almost like you look at a kid who's just learning how to ride a bike. If they have a commitment and intent mm-hmm. to learn to ride this bike, right? The initial push off is going to look rocky. It's going to look shaky and it's not going to look pretty. And they're going to make a lot of mistakes. They're going to fall. I see a lot of movements and gestures just like I see that out of the gate. It's not going to be necessarily right and pretty and it could err on the side of white guilt, but let's not demonize it. Let's not throw it away. But instead, let's just, again, continue to solve for the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, it's outcome uh, thinking versus process thinking. If we just think about the process, we'll get overwhelmed and we'll get discouraged and we'll shut down. But if we think, okay, everything that we do, everything that we test, everything that we we apply, it always has to be laid against the outcome, the, the desired result we want and make informed decisions based upon how well we're moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. I think that is the, that's the momentum, that's the posture, that's the flow I think we need to, to be able to be in and sustain. But, but I also think that if, you, if we don't rush, if we don't move too quickly, we can avoid many of those mistakes. So when, so when we talk about listen, learn, lament, part of that is to give the space of processing. So we're not out of the gate trying to, you know, uh, swing the pendulum to the other side and just right the ship right away. That's the whole point of that process. Um, and I shared that yesterday on my social media. Um, slow down. Like, 
we just experience trauma. All of us experience trauma. Mm. So there are going to be those decisions that are made um, to right the ship, and they're going to, and, and some of them are going to compound the issue. But if we if we process this thing together, slow down, and I would say listen to the voices of color. We'll make less mistakes. We won't come out of the gate um, exacerbating the problem. But isn't the fear that we can't allow this energy and this momentum to dissipate? Yeah, that is yeah. the fear. But I don't think I don't think it will. I'm not saying we don't do anything. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying let's not try to like fix everything right away. Of course. In that processing we'll make wiser decisions. Now, this is where as a pastor, I, I share, you know, this is where I'm allowing God to lead me. This is where I'm allowing, not just lead me, but us in, in community as we wrestle with things. Like even right now, as we're talking, we're, we're processing, we have different, maybe some different views and, and, and suggestions and stuff like that. But in this context, there can come, there can be something can be, we can give birth to something, mm-hmm. right? So the process doesn't have to be long. I mean, it could be weeks. It could be a matter of weeks, but it just, like take your take our time, and and let's 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 do this together rather than trying to fix it because we're not going to fix it right. right away. This is, I don't believe that this gets fixed in my generation. Mm-hmm. I'm a cynic. I believe we can make it better for the next generation. And when I say generation, maybe in my lifetime, the next generation, those Gen Zs, they have a better starting point. Everything I do is not for me or for us necessarily. It's for my niece. It's for my godson. So when they're older, they don't have to have the same conversation. They may have some conversations, but not the same conversations. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm thinking it's critical that we don't we don't try to fix it today. Mm-hmm. I don't think we'll lose the urgency. I think, because uh, again, I'm not saying wait until like next year or anything like that. I'm just saying, let's just make sure we're we're taking the right steps. I believe the healing part is is critical, man. I think making certain decisions from a from a, a hurt, angry or 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 traumatized space can actually make the problem worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think really tending to that because the civil rights movement, the work that they put in, even before it started, the work that they put in behind the scenes, the women, before King even came on board, they, the ship was already rolling. Mm-hmm. And then he comes on board and he's this dynamic personality. But even every step of the way, every week, every month, they were strategizing. They were meeting, praying, strategizing. And so if they can do that and, and give us a model, mm-hmm. then I think we can do the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and I, I agree with you on that. I think what I would like to add, at least highlight, is um, I, I think it, it's and both. I think the waiting the allows the healing because I think that's I mean that's that's the point we we I think all agree to yeah. that that's important the lamenting part of the 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 four L's you've got listen you've got learn you've got lament you know which is mourning uh, many times you you have people from different sides they'll have to mourn the the power um, and the 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 supreme the white supremacy that they didn't know they were perpetuating. Mm-hmm. Okay, they how the world was the way they thought the mm-hmm. is different. So mm-hmm. definitely, I think that is that is a necessary part and process. But 
more, I mean, pragmatically, I, I see it as and both. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's we, what I'm, yeah. Right, yeah, we, yeah. we don't want to rush things so that we make a lot of, you know, unforced errors, mm-hmm. so to speak. But at the same time, I think we, we continue to move in ways and and if things happen and they make mistakes, let's not demonize. That's the point that I wanted to really highlight is, okay, if something happens and someone, I mean, we, we see this in administrations all the time. Uh, you know, you go into the Affordable Care Act, right? And this thing rolls out and it was far from perfect, far from perfect. Uh, but instead of, again, seeing it as a rollout and then identifying what works, what doesn't, and then changing um, political parties demonize mm-hmm. and and want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. And we see that happening over and over again from the left to the right, right to the left. We see it in social groups, uh, different dynamics. I just keep wanting to advocate that can't be our approach mm-hmm. because like you said, Rich, the problem is too too complex for us to have lazy logic in this and be stuck in our silos so much that we spend more energy defending our point than solving the problem. Mm-hmm. Another, switching gears a little bit, another narrative that's out there is that this problem is not for black people to solve. It's mm-hmm. for white people to solve. So what is the role of white America in redressing this other than, you know, that you talked about the L's and we need to educate people. We need to appreciate the complexity of this. We need time to heal. We need, you know, uh, uh, a longer conversation that isn't bifurcated around political mm-hmm. lines. Like how do we, how does, how do the, the white people listening to this wrap their heads around how they can be a most productive member of this, you know, movement? I, I, I think, <laughs> You know, I, I I go back and forth because I, I believe that it's voices of color that um, need to lead mm-hmm. um, because we feel it. Uh, you know, this idea, you can't lead me someplace you've never been or you can't give to me what you've never had. 100%. Mm-hmm. It, it would just, it's preposterous to right. think yeah. otherwise. Right. You know? So, so there, there's a learning from voices of color, but I think taking the power and the privilege and, and, and being a part of helping to reach the white, the, the broader white community. I think right now that's, that's the, whether it's in government, those congressmen and women um, using their positions to reach them, family members on the family level, reaching them in the corporate in corporations, reaching them. I think because we can't reach them. Our job, we can share, we can put pressure on, we can protest, we can, we can do all these things. We can write books, but they're not going to listen to us necessarily. So I think one way, this is just one, it's not the only way. This is just one, one thing is I ask, you know, white friends, you have to be the voice to reach the people that we're not going to be able to reach on all these levels, wherever your influence is. That's, that's one way because I don't know what else we can do. I, I really don't. Mm-hmm. If you look at literature, you look at music, you look at movies, you look at um, marches, we've done it peacefully, we've done it angrily, we've kneeled, we've knelt, we've fist in the air, we've used our bodies in ways 
that that's our we didn't that's one of the primary resources we have our bodies we've done everything we know to do and we're still here not just incidents but a culture right i think it takes the white allies or whatever word you want to use for that to be the voices advocating in solidarity to the white community because they're not going to listen to us necessarily. Mm-hmm. Not all, some will, but the masses won't listen to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to add to that, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, we talk about Dr. Martin Luther King during the civil rights movement, and we forget about another voice that uh, was even more demonized, but I think was was as equally an integral part in advancing was Malcolm X, mm-hmm. right? And uh, even to this day, uh, you know, he that name is still demonized. And, and a lot of people, when they hear that name, they're immediately, you know, fearful because of what he stood for. But what people, what is, what is less known about him, especially in the tail end of his, of his movement uh, and, and his, his, his platform was he, you know, saw and started to, to, to bring different nationalities and cultures together. And and he he shared something that that I think is is important and it speaks to your your question about what do white people do in this in this moment and and one thing he he recognized is uh, right now of course everybody's binging Netflix uh, there's a a Netflix or no I think it's on 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 HBO but the Defiant ones it's a it's a, a four part uh, episode or series on the relationship between Dr Dre and uh, Jimmy Iovine right. Mm. Uh, two moguls in the the hip hop or the the music industry, and how they come together, and how you know they're taking over the world with bees and apple and all that stuff, right? Well, interesting, and the point that Malcolm X really tried to highlight that I see illustrated in their relationship is at some point the Jimmy Iovine saw and recognized the talent and the the ability um, of Dr. Dre, and it wasn't a posture of let me reach back and down and pull this guy up. It was never that. What it was, was, wait a minute, I see and identify in, 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 uh, in Dr. Dre the same love and passion and raw talent and ability even better than my own. And, uh, and I'm going to actually use my, my in um, to nurture and cultivate this guy. That that whole relationship is powerful. We need more of that mm. because here you had Jimmy Iovine, who was already on the inn, um, who himself, you know, came from modest backgrounds, but then at the height of his power, recognizing someone else and saying, "Let me mentor. Let me." And it wasn't again this back and down. It wasn't charity. He saw how he could make money. With Dr. Dre, right? I mean, it, he saw that this guy was valuable, um, but but this guy also needs a seat at the table and but needs to be coached. not in an exploitive way. Exactly. What you're saying. Right. Yeah. Not in a, it was in a partnership way, mm-hmm. and uh, in a way that's loving too. Because not to not to like uh, spoiler, you know, to spoil whoever wants to watch it. But you saw in the narrative of uh, Dr. Dre's life many missteps that um, that. You, you know, it's like, wow, he could have blown it up here. He could have blown it up here and here. He still had a guy who was like, look, I'm all in with you because I, 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 I see the value. 
So extrapolating on that, the message that you're trying to convey, like mm -hmm. like distill that down to the point okay. that relates to Malcolm X. So, so the the point that um, thank you for actually helping me bring the, the the point is Malcolm X recognized the the importance of people white people in power aligning themselves with black people mm. uh, and sharing the power right and and not doing it in a way that it's charity not doing it in a way that it's what, what we're deeming as white guilt but actually taking the time to recognize seeing the humanity um, of, a, of another person and recognizing in the backdrop of inequality I'm gonna ride with this person right come hell or high yeah, water yeah I got it one of the um differentiating factors between what's happening now and the civil rights movement of the late 1960s is that um, there is no Malcolm X or Martin Luther King. We don't have mm -hmm. a singular voice to galvanize the movement around there. But, but at the same time, there's a lot of interesting voices out there right now. They're just more dispersed. Mm -hmm. It's not as centralized as before. And I've, I found myself wondering like, would it be better if there was one person that we're kind of pivoting around? I mean, that doesn't seem to be the re reality right now, but maybe one of the things we can kind of um, wind this conversation down with is who are those interesting voices out there if people wanna broaden their you know, information silo to expose themselves to interesting people of, of color? I, I think of Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yeah, I just listened to him on, the, on Ezra Klein's podcast the other day, it was amazing. Yeah, I think, I think he, he, uh, he's a voice that, that has to be seriously considered and listened to. But I think, I don't know if we'll ever really go back to that model. Mm. Um, you know, in our community, we, we, we say every time we have a leader, they kill him. <laughs> on some level. Yeah. I don't know why I'm... Yeah, no, it, like, it, that's it, not funny. It's, it's, it's laughing to release the pain. It's sad, but, but true. But either physically kill them or their their character, their reputation, they'll find a way. And then that that kills the whole movement because we've put everything around this mm. one central voice. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. And so when you have multiple voices, and I think it's important, um, if you have multiple voices, you have someone who has an, ex, an expertise in this area, they can bring that to the table. You have someone over here who has an expertise in this area and they can bring that to the table. Um, I'm trying to think of, um, my whole library is just going through my head and everything's- If you uh, can't think of anybody now, if you got, maybe you guys email me and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Willie yeah. Jennings mm. is phenomenal. He's a theologian. He's phenomenal. Um, he has a book called The Christian Imagination. He has a controversial lecture it's controversial if you just look at the title. It's called Can White People Be Saved? And he's not talking about white people in terms of necessarily ethnicity, but he's talking about ideology where we talk about white supremacy and people who um, subscribe to that either even subconsciously. But it's a, it, he breaks down whiteness um, and its impact on, on the whole world um, from colonialism um, to now. And he does it theologically. Um, J. Cameron Carter is another theologian that's brilliant. He was at Duke. You know, he's at Indiana mm -hmm. University, I believe. So th there are a number of voices, and many of them don't get as much um, airplay as they should. Um, but these 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 guys are, are brilliant. Um, I think of uh, 
who did I, I think I shared a name, a female, a woman. Uh, well, Angela Rye, I, I, I love Angela Rye. She, she's, she's brilliant as yeah, well. Very outspoken. There, I'll, I'll send you. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Byron, does anyone come well, to mind? Well, you know, actually, I, I, I actually agree with, uh, with Phil when you're saying that I think the model has to be slightly different. There needs to be a hybrid model moving forward. I don't think there, there, there will be one person to galvanize and be that one voice. But, um, and this is my, my crazy creative side coming out. I, I, when I look at movements and, organ, and organisms and how uh, you see systems operate uh, autonomously, um, but continue to thrive and exist. For example, you you look at, let's say, um, again, if, if, and this is crazy. See, if, if pull me back in if I go too far. But uh, you, you look at, Paleo, you look at, uh, you know, the raw, uh, you look at movements um, like, you know, plant strong, plant based. There isn't just one person who everyone is following mm. and keeping those movements alive. No, it's it's a it's a it's a concept is an ideal, not an ideology, but it is a, a framework by which people in by themselves can take ownership of and then create a lifestyle around it. And they, in, 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 in doing that, they can augment that with resources from other voices. So their, any, their, their education or their thirst for knowledge and mastery is what drives the movement with them. And then you have that happening collectively among thousands and millions of people. And that's what allows a movement to exist. I truly believe that is what's going to have to take place in this is that at some point at the fundamental personal level, everyone's going to have to say, this is going to become a lifestyle for me. And then as I come up against blocks or roadblocks or confusion, that's when I'm going to reach out and I'm going to listen to voices that I think are credible. And then I'm going to take, like my old pastor used to say, you know, he says, taking advice is like eating chicken. He says, you, you eat the meat, throw the bones away, you right. know, and that's, you know, kind of funny, but, but that's, that's, I think, the mentality that we have to have. We have to say, I'm going to take personal ownership of it, and I'm going to live it out regardless of what other people think and say or do, and I'm going to purposely orient my life where I'm going to keep educating myself in this lifestyle, in this way of life, so that I'm better at it, and then ultimately I'm blessing and impacting in a positive way the lives around me. Mm, beautifully put, man. Mm. Beautifully put. Well, I think we should uh, put a pin in it. I think we we covered a lot of ground here. I do want to point out that a good place for people to start, especially if you want to learn more about Phil, is to read your your recent blog post. This is America. I thought that was super powerful. Thank you. And you basically you you once again not mincing words, like you just break down this whole situation in in a way that um, I think is is powerful, but also. Um, digestible for anybody to read. Uh, so any final thoughts before we end it today? Well, I wanted to, I, I love you, Rich. You're, you're a brother from another mother. We, you know, I just, just your heart um, and for allowing us on the podcast and just, again, having this kind of conversation and just seeing you and your heart and the, the steadfastness of the mission you're on with the platform you've been given and that you're blessed to cultivate. Um, thank you. 
thank you because I think that this these are the sorts of things that need to happen. I appreciate consistently. That. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm just you know, I'm I'm doing this as imperfectly as anybody and trying to learn as I go. Like I'm doing this for my own personal edification as much for for anything else and. You know, it's incumbent upon me, just like it is for everybody else, to try to be as open-minded, to humble ourselves, and and to um, and to uh, you know broaden our aperture on all of this. So I really appreciate you guys coming here today and sharing openly and honestly and from the heart your experience and your perspective. And I hope you guys come back and talk to me a little bit more. I, I appreciate being here, cool. man. This was this was good. It was good for me. You say, um, what can white people do? I think you're doing it. Um, you're sharing the, the, the at the table. We're sitting at an actual table. Um, but it, it feels like a partnership in this conversation. You know what I mean? And I think that's important. Um, yeah. Thanks. Yep. Appreciate that. Um, all right. So if you're digging on these guys, the best way to track them down and find them, Phil Allen Jr. on... Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Phil com as well, right? Yep. And Byron? Byron.cc. Yeah, Byron.cc. I <laughs> like that. Um, thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. And I, I hope that you continue your advocacy. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Peace. Bye. So that happened. We did that. How'd it go down for you? How was it? How are you feeling? Maybe let it sink in, you guys. Let it steep, people. Please check out the show notes on the episode page where I have enumerated a large catalog of resources, articles, books, films, and nonprofits related to today's discussion. Check out Phil's documentary, Open Wounds. It's on Vimeo On Demand and his spoken word poetry on YouTube. And let these gentlemen know how this conversation landed for you. You can do that on the socials. You can find Byron at Byron Davis one on Instagram and Phil is at Phil Allen J-R-I-G on Instagram and at Phil Allen J-R on Twitter. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube, you guys. Share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. Thanks to everybody who helped put on today's show. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing today's show and creating all the clips we share on social media. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers for portraits. Georgia Whaley for copywriting. DK for advertiser relationships and theme music by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Hari Mathis. By the way, Tyler is working on some new music. We might even have a new intro theme song. <gasps> Oh my God, I know that makes people really scared, but I think it might be time to try something new. Tyler's working on some cool stuff, so I hope to share that with you in the coming weeks. In the meantime, thank you for the love, you guys. I appreciate you. I will see you back here in a couple days. When is it? Actually, next week. This is the only episode this week. So I'll see you back here next week with another amazing episode. And until then, may the wisdom of today's conversation sink in. And may we all step into becoming our best version of an all-season love warrior. Peace. Plants. Namaste.